to the Golf Barons podcast, Tenuous Links, a golf pun we're not only incredibly proud of, but one we're also sure to emulate. Let us careen through bloviated opinions on all things golf, some outrageous innovation ideas to speed up the game, a few laughs, and an historical retelling of an iconic golf moment. Time to add some swagger to your swing. Hello, Barons. Today's Tenuous Links Golf Podcast is brought to you by Under Armour, makers of some of the finest performance golf apparel, shoes, and accessories you'll find anywhere on the planet. Under Armour apparel is incredibly comfortable, is the perfect blend between athletic and swagger, and they have something for all kinds of conditions, whether hot or cold, and everything in between. Add some more swagger to your wardrobe with Under Armour. Fully Barons approved apparel. So today on the show we have Philbert, and again we have the great man Dav on board. Gentlemen, socially distanced as usual at the moment. How are we all? Very well. Good to see you guys digitally. I've got my custom. What? Sorry, Donald. <laughs> uh, I've got my custom mask going. Uh, I'm cherry up. You sound better with a mask on, Phil. Yes, I know. It helps my dulcet tones. Should it? <laughs> and we have Dav fresh off the golf course today as well. Let's get – that does sound like something we'd all like to do, but we're not going to start with our loves, Phil. We start with a hate, and I'm going to throw it to you this week. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Damo. I am starting with a hate, and I'm going to call this the cost of playing a couple of extra holes. Security guards mm. moonlighting as wannabe Mitch Cumsteins from Caddyshack. <laughs> So you're not talking golf holes here, Phil. No, this is dangerous territory to cutting. kick this show off with. We're not talking <laughs> golf holes, but I tell you what, they are doing the same thing to the rest of the country. A little bit of night putting, a little bit of, look, we might just play the 19th and the 20th. We won't finish at 18 because <laughs> I just can't help myself. And before you know it, we've got 85%, potentially more, of COVID cases in Victoria linked to a little bit of night putting, Mitch Cumstein style. And what I would have rathered is them just hang up the clubs and accept that they're going to have to play tomorrow in the daylight because night putting is actually dead set. <laughs> it really has been an incredibly frustrating time in Victoria, and I'm glad <laughs> we kind of have to have to make some light of all of this, otherwise we're going to go stir crazy. What are your thoughts, Dev? What are my thoughts about what's happening in the defiant state of Victoria? Why not? Is that what you're let's, asking? <laughs> let's throw it. Let's throw it around. And well, Dev's no, joining no, us today. Welcome on board, Dev. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know how how fast you wanted me to push this episode of the, the podcast along, fellas. My concern currently is: Am I expecting a fine in the mail based on the game of golf that I played today? Depending <laughs> upon how far it was, which I won't tell, how far it was from where I live. Now, it wasn't. It wasn't a, a seventy k drive to a, a fishing expedition, as as they seem to be promoting uh, those particular cases and the fines that are dishing out for that sort of behavior. But I mean, I don't live in a suburb where there is a public course. The only, the only course that near to me is, is a member's course. So I need to travel mm-hmm. a little bit. Can I play golf outside of the suburb I live in? And how far can is reasonable for me to travel to have a game of golf at a public course. Dev- and were you wearing a mask by any chance, Dev? Well, no, I, but, I, but, I, but I will do in about 48 hours if need be. <laughs> so in the context of my hate, Dev, are you suggesting that the security guards did nothing wrong by playing the courses nearest to them? I mean, were they actually following <laughs> Victorian government guidelines by going to the, cor- the nearest courses that they could find that were open, so to speak, and playing those couple of extra holes, whereas had they actually gone and played courses outside of their local municipality or outside of near where they were working, then maybe we wouldn't be in this position and I wouldn't feel like they'd done to me what they'd done to others. Do we know what condition the courses were in, Phil? (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, and that uh, <laughs> I think that sums that up. <laughs> Boys, my hate this week is has been a very it's been a very frustrating week for me technologically, uh, which is usually something that Phil has trouble with. But technology <laughs> technology failing on failing me, especially in this time in the age of COVID, when we're relying on it more than ever before. And there've been a couple of instances that we'll, that I'll touch on, even with this podcast. You guys have seen if it is our, our third crack at it because my internet's been so slow or down this week, just dropping out. It's driving me uh, driving me mad. So number one, NBN, you can ram that in the cave with all those COVID bats. As far as I'm concerned, I'm just I'm not interested. You can also shove homeschooling in there too, Phil. But <laughs> want to be but a big the bigger, comes but back the to bigger the security guards. <laughs> the bigger the bigger technology fail was around something that we were involved with last week or so, which was a great event, um, an online. A virtual golf tournament, Phil, wasn't it? The X Golf Challenge, uh, which was for Challenge uh, supporting kids with cancer. We had a bit of issues as the we were first. First things first, we were lucky enough to be invited to host host the occasion, which was a great honour for us. Obviously, the other five thousand people they asked couldn't make it, and they uh, they threw it to us. We were cheap. We were. We were. Well, free. Um, but <laughs> but. Again, technology letting me down. We had a great setup. We were socially distanced. We did everything right. We had our 4K cameras set up. We tested it. It was working. We got to the place where we were um, where we were filming, and nothing changed. And it decided to not work on us uh, at the what were we five minutes out from airtime? Ten minutes out. So, should it, level five leadership would suggest that. I tested the camera and it, I, it wasn't working the way I tested it. Uh, so level three leadership would say we tested the camera and it wasn't mm-hmm. working. In fact, Dion and I had nothing to do with the camera. Level five leadership no, you guys can't level even five spell leader it. said I tested the camera and I found it to be working and then I didn't it, then it didn't work for me and therefore and it then work yeah for us. so that's Take exactly what happened then then when you guys were in the room it didn't work I'm just saying <laughs> uh, not to mention we had a couple of mic issues as well but I did want to get even though we're talking about our hates I did want to bring that front and center the X Golf Challenge which was um, such a cool event to be a part of um, which leads into my love I'm going to take over here boys. I love seeing a bold idea come to fruition. And w- w- whether that's Golf Barons as a concept or the X-Golf Challenge, which we're talking about, uh, I know I was told the the Golf Barons wouldn't work when I, when it was just a, um, a dream uh, way by back me. when by heaps of people in the industry. I don't, um, yeah, could have been you. Um, but, but I'm sure Ben Styles at X-Golf was met with some similar apprehension around his concept of, of getting pros around Australia in four, four different states, as it ended up being, playing at the same time on X-Golf simulators for a prize and to raise awareness for a uh, challenge supporting kids with cancer. It doesn't have to be perfect or, or an event or an idea doesn't have to roll out perfectly to achieve proof of concept, does it, Phil? Uh, if timing's good, be 80% be eighty right now. Don't wait six months to be 100% right when potentially you miss the boat. And and they saw an opening and they saw an opportunity, which was COVID and which was golf pros sitting at home without that competitive burn mm-hmm. and giving them an opportunity, as well as some of the celebrities that managed to embarrass me. And embarrass us, but I'll say me because, you know, that's level five leadership for you. And yeah, you are level five. But in reality, he and the whole ex-golf team saw an opportunity. And, and yes, it was done a little bit on the fly, but unashamedly on the fly. I think it was its mm-hmm. rawness that it was, was its most attractive element in many respects, trying to get things going. But the fact that you can, and this is from a, an event point of view, people playing on simulators, an elite field of golf professionals, male and female, playing the same golf course. 
Exactly right. Uh, yet, interesting enough, some of them were dressed in shorts, like Brett Shorts Branken, thinking Shorts Rankin. thinking that it was you know twenty six degrees because it probably was wherever he, he was at Metro though, playing in twenty one degrees without a breath of wind, and the people at Geelong playing Metro in twenty one degrees without a breath of wind looked they were rugged up for for winter. Uh, but fantastic. It was a really fantastic event. It was great to be a part of. And it was like a two and a half hour long podcast where you weren't allowed to make a mistake. <laughs> it's the complete opposite of this one. Um, <laughs> but one other thing around it, though, is it's also pleasing. This is the schadenfreude coming out of me again, Phil, but it's also <laughs> pleasing when those very doubters come back and say, oh, well done, as if they were supporting from the get-go. We've seen a, we've seen quite a few of those with gold barons. But, I, I mean, I guess that's just human nature. Maybe I'm being a little unfair because I- Overall, though, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of risk takers, um, especially those that do so in a professional setting. And I love seeing it come off and um, turn into a, gr- well, a great event or a great idea or, or, or a great end product. Um, I find it quite inspiring. So it was awesome to be a part of that. And I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit more as the podcast ticks along. But um, loves, gentlemen. Dav, do you have anything that has got you excited in the last little while? <laughs> oh, I just think, I mean, just the news story that, that, that came across uh, my attention today was was uh, the great Jack Nicholas just announcing that he had COVID back in, back in March, brushed it aside. I think that's proof, gentlemen, that golf is the conqueror of all things COVID. And, uh, well, Jack is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jack plus golf. He's so, the COVID uh, goat. Although, Mr. although Mr. he 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 said that he he had symptoms for a month and his wife had absolutely nothing, even though they both tested positive. So, behind every great man, gentlemen, is an even greater <laughs> woman, and I think uh, this is case in point. And behind every <laughs> great COVID. woman and man is a great bat. <laughs> and behind that are some security guards. That's right, <laughs> <laughs> Philly. Loves. Yeah. Come my, on, my, let's get let's get us up and about. Come on. Mine was very similar to yours, Damo, in, in that this idea of um, – so believe not, as polished a performer as I am, this is all very, very new to me and, and something in many respects that was never expected. But I'm loving the idea of getting comfortable being uncomfortable and it's something that mm. you see a lot of self-helpers talk about, a lot of guys with massive teeth and huge smiles and – What's his Gigantism. name? Robbins or Anthony yeah. Robbins or one of those. Anthony guys. Yeah, Robbins, get comfortable yeah. being uncomfortable. And I've never. No, he's actually- Tony Robbins now, isn't he? Tony, oh, I don't know, but I've never understood it really, uh, which is probably a shame about my life without getting too deep and you know <laughs> meaningful and, and having this as a bit of a self help thing. But the, this idea of being uncomfortable, getting uncomfortable, being comfortable, uh, or vice versa. So the X Golf Challenge is a perfect example. Last week we sat there being told that we we're about to go live knowing that, okay, well, I can't make jokes about that. I can't, I mean, not, they're funny, but I can't refer to anything along these lines. We've got to not use a couple of uh, words, Demo, that we agreed that we wouldn't use going in. That <laughs> we, and we also, we also may, or may, may or may not have um, had too much of a clue what was coming up at any <laughs> <Yeah>. given time. <laughs> and so from that point of view, you, you actually have to sit there wanting to be as, as loose as we like to be, and we're hopefully getting looser and looser, and anyone who... Uh, when you all get to watch season two, you're going to see a, a new looser ass. But this idea of how- A new looser what? The, the idea, it all comes can back you, to the Can you leave guards. the security guards for five minutes? <laughs> um, but for two and a half hours, needing to actually watch what you're saying without watching what you're saying. And I've got newfound respect for people who, do, for newsreaders, people who do this for well, a they living. they have teleprompters, Phil. Because I'm 
Yeah, but I can't read, and I'm so far Never out of my com- I'm so far out of my comfort zone that I'm actually really enjoying being miles away from where I'm where I'm safe, mm. including swimming in the bay when it's twelve degrees. Safe is overrated. How did you guys? How did you guys feel post event that evening? Were you were you tired? Did it did it stretch you? Did it exhaust you? We were. I can only speak for me because we didn't have a, a full on brief after the event. But I was pretty tired. But it, it was almost like it was almost like a um, even at school. If you've ever been in a play or in a drama or something along those lines, you're still you're quite wired at the end of it, and and you've got a lot of energy, and and you just part of you wants to redo parts you didn't think you nailed, or um, but you do have that adrenaline going through. Well, at least I did. Phil, were you similar? I was the same. It's sort of that I'd probably describe it as a as a nervous nervousness that made you feel cold because you were so wound up with energy. So I'm sort of it was four degrees outside. Slightly not not shaking, but but just like you had that that shivers because it was just excitement and energy. I had a splitting headache until yeah, probably midday yep. the next day. Uh, did you get tested I, for COVID? No, you did on behalf of both of us. And All clear. <laughs> yeah, that's a security guards one hundred and one. But but so felt wound up, but it was quite a relief. I mean, my initial thing was where we got through it and we didn't muck it up. And I know I put that in a, a couple of little things that I'd written as, you know, our, our number one job was to not bugger it up and number two job was to try and add value to it. Um, mm. But there was a relief to it. There's no question there was a relief to mm. it that, phew, I think I, I think I made it through without mentioning the war, unless I just did then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was, a, there was a genuine feeling. Like, for me, there was a feeling, this might be overstating it, but uh, there was a feeling that you guys, as, as on-screen talent, in some respect, you arrived that night. Like, I felt like, you know, I think that we've been, we've been doing the show for a while now and that, uh, I think to, to your point about the comfort zone, I think you guys know the formula, you know the on-screen requirements that, and the things you have to hit. But I think this was a new, yeah, this was a new realm for you guys. And, and, and in retrospect, I think the event needed good talent to tie all of the facets together because there were so many things going on that without you guys, there would have been nothing going on, if that makes sense. But it was, it was, there was so many different sort of, I don't know, the cameras and touch points and things that it just needed a linchpin. And you guys, you know, probably without, as you said, too much planning, absolutely delivered in, in terms of that role really well. My biggest takeaway from it, from a golf baron's perspective, was how as much as we are a team and we've been a team for a while, it really bonded us closer as a team to understand we've got each other's backs when when one of us is uh, is struggling or, or something isn't quite going to going to script so to speak, we're there to help each other out. It's a, it was a genuine team effort, and um, mm. and if, for people who have ever played any team sport, it, there's nothing quite like achieving something as a team. I know we hear it; and it's almost a cliche, but it's so true. Mm. Probably the biggest upside from it was getting a um, an email through from someone that we'll call uh, Grant from. Essendon or Doreen, uh, in that his uncle was from Essendon. Big Kenny, is Dion Kipping, in fact, Rusty from Vacation, being <laughs> Rusty from the Vacation movies? Because Grant swears to God that, or Allah Jar, whoever you're into, that uh, that he was in that he was in fact demonetized. That, that he was in fact Rusty from Vacation. So um, Anthony Michael Hall, I think you'll find Anthony is Michael the Hall. is the is a, a bit of a dead ringer, a bit of a dead ringer there. So anyway, I think that was a little laugh, a dismount laugh. <laughs> Phil, before we, before we do jump off that entirely, do you want to just let I don't know if you've let Dav know, but just the correspondence you had post the event. 
from oh, from regarding challenge. So the event was for challenge, and we we did everything we could to make challenge front and center. And every now and again, because you don't always get lots of thanks. Not this is about thanks or acknowledgement, but an email that I got the next day was a fabulous one, and it was from. Bryony Lyle, and I hope she doesn't mind me sharing it, but she just said she was having a fantastic morning packing orders the next morning following two and a half hours of of continual discussion amongst the celebrities, amongst the golf professionals, and from us as well about Challenge, the great work Challenge do. Tom Gleisner was, you know, we were very fortunate enough to to have Tom on even for a few minutes just to to interview and and just be able to speak to someone of that esteem, but but for Challenge, given that that was the whole mm-hmm. centre point of it, that was a real thrill for us. And when, I know when I told that made Damo- it, Yeah, that made it for us, didn't it? When, we, when, mm. when you said that to the group, you could just see everyone was just almost, you know, pumping the air, fist pumping. Yeah. Um, no. That's why we did it, and we were so, we're so proud to be a part of that. So we're so glad we could help in any way at all. And for anyone else listening, challenge.org.au, if you've got a, a local golf club doing it for Jared Month, he's going to be over the two months of October, November. Please encourage your golf club to register for doing it for Jared. You can do that online or you can just get your golf club to to touch base with Challenge. It'll be fantastic. The more golf clubs, the better to spread the word. It's a great bonding exercise for golf clubs to get everyone behind a single cause because it really happens. And it's to, to celebrate all the great things that Challenge do after a really tough year that they've had uh, and continue the legacy of that was really started by guys like Rob Allenby in the golf space and to continue the legacy of Jared Lyle mm-hmm. as ambassador. Please do what you can, challenge.org.au. They are unbelievable people. Good work, Phil. Um, now, you did, you did just mention one of the best ball strikers of all time in Rob Allenby and Jared Lyle's actually one of an, the absolute flushes that I've been that I've ever been around to see live. So I'm going to move into my game changes, which is around the concept of swinging like a professional. Now, this came about, I suppose what I mean by this is more the imitating a professional, a professional golfer or their swing. And can you get imitating these these swings of the stars? Can you find, are there things within their swings that will suit your game or better your game? And this came about from, should we say, could we call it a skit? We probably can't. It was it was a it was a it challenge we were doing. To be a skit. No, it was a it yeah. It's it's there's one letter wrong in that. It was a it was a challenge that we were we were trying to do, and as a part of it, I was imitating a character within world golf, and in order to do that, it has a, quite a distinct swing, and so in order to imitate properly, hit some balls, I had to change my swing. And the first time I've never <laughs> never practiced it, and the first time I, I I swung that way, and he swings it a lot lower than me, or how would you call it, sort of a flatter swing than me, and I flushed it, and you you and Kipper both just went, you have to start swinging <laughs> yeah, like that right. <laughs> straight away. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, thoughts thoughts on trying to um, emulate some of the some of the best golfers who are out there and seeing if some work better with your body and your you know your personal biodynamics, etc. I think there's a golf element to it. There's a general sport element to it. And where I'll bring the other sports in, and I'll get back to golf because I'll attempt to. I'm no Ross Noble, but hopefully I can come back to golf at some stage. From a tennis point of view, there was always, you know, growing up, it was the Bjorn Borg backhand, you know, with a two-hander. And then it was the Pete Sampras backhand, you know, where you're actually trying to mirror these things or you're trying to mirror a Stefan Edberg serve. From a tennis one was the main so one. Volley, that, yeah. That we were, but in terms of the action, it was actually, I'm going to do an Edberg. And then basketball, the same thing. You know, the, and the most famous one, my brother mm. used to do what he called his Jamal Wilkes. And for anyone um, listening who knows basketball, I mean, it was quite a unique 
shooting style. You show the kids a Sean Marion all the way through to a Steph Curry and Michael Jordan and, and otherwise. And so when it comes back to golf, and so, Dad, that'll be the, the question for you as a more rounded side of it. But to, when it comes back to golf, we always did that. Growing up, you'd always be on the practice field like, can I swing it like Norman? Can I swing it like, you know, VJ? Can I swing it like Jack Nicholas? Can I, you know, what does a mm-hmm. Paul Azinger swing look like? I mean, it obviously air swings all the way through to a Colin Montgomery <laughs> Um, or even a, a even a Norman, yeah. Norman was probably a classic one for a lot of Aussies. Uh, of course, it was, and then and then even Rob Allamy and Dustin Johnson more recently is the one that a lot of people are trying to mirror or replicate. Yeah. Just you, know, you had ripping. you had Furick, you had Furick covered for a little while there, Phil. Yeah, no, good. Let's get back to you then, Damien. <laughs> but that idea of I, I think you can actually get a feel from what's going on, and what's interesting is your perception of what's happening versus what's actually happening, and not always yeah. the same thing. So, Dave, my question to you. Is mm. be it by golf or be it with other sports? Have you ever found that by mirroring someone, attempted to mirror an action of someone who is elite in an effort mm. to try and find a sweet spot? Yeah, almost, almost exclusively. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think for for me, being that basketball is the sport that I grew up playing the most, and I and I told you, you fellas, this story not long ago, is that when I was when I was quite young, I I got. I got moved up an age group just no particular reason. The coach of the team of under 16s liked me when I was 12 and I'm, I'm not tall by any stretch, even within my own peers. So it was a ridiculous move to, to put me playing against 15 year olds when I was 12. The only way that I could compete was with an outside shot and I didn't have one. And no matter what I did, I, I couldn't develop an outside shot. So I uh, looked around and, and I, was a, I was a big fan of Andrew Gaze and I just completely ripped off his jump shot mm-hmm. and to the point where my nickname became Drewy because it just was identical <laughs> in every way, shape and form. But I became deadly. And I don't know whether it's because I committed to an action mm. and saw it through that I became good with that action or whether it was the action doing the work for me. But I, I became I became an elite outside shooter known for that throughout all my playing years. So, I mean, from my experience, I actually think that I, I recommend it. I think that, you know, and I, and I think it, it's funny because then when you'd see video of yourself, you go, well, yeah, it is a replica of that action, but I am, as to your point, that, uh, shooter, I'm physically obviously very different to Andrew Gay, mm. so it's not going to be the identical shot. There's going to be variations that suit my body type that are just naturally going to come into play. And so I think it's a really good starting point, and then I think you get to, you get as far as you can with it, and then you need to bring in your own modifications and adaptations that suit your biomechanics. And cr- cricket's another great example of that, growing up where kids love to try and imitate, yeah, copy the – the actions. I mean, we used to. Murph Hughes was always a classic one. People would try and copy he, just because it was such a, a, a different mm-hmm. action. Or even a Craig McDermott from a bowling perspective. Knew plenty of guys who tried to bat like Mark. Or even my son now. I was noticing him in the nets, and he's got that little squat, and he, he bounces up. And I'm like, well, "What's that from?" And then I went, "Ah, oh, Steve Smith. Almost identical. He's watched mm-hmm. him that many times. He's almost. <laughs> he's just been. He's just. They they do that exact sort of thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Anyway. So or a I bit think of Manus, a, or a bit of Manus Labuschagne. <laughs> Because I know uh, Grant, from, Grant from Essendon or Doreen also would love the fact that I'm going to refer to him as a bit of a Ewan Chatfield type. So, you know, we all do these things and mirror them or mimic them depending on the rhythms. And Ma- Michael Holding, I mean, you're right, Malcolm Marshall, yeah. like every kid oh, growing absolutely. up of my vintage oh, ran ha- in side yeah. onto the stumps to try and then flick the ball around like Michael Marshall in the hope of knocking someone's head off. Malcolm um, Marshall, yeah. yeah. 
But I think, and I think, oh, yeah, Michael Marshall um, was in the underworld thing. Yeah, let's go, Malcolm Marshall. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hang on, the bikies are back. (laughs) Very front on. Um, so yeah, that, that's the thing. That's the thing with golf. Like for now, when you look at when you look at them, as we talked about, a, a lot of them are very similar in their actions. Who who would you be trying to imitate now if you were to do it? It's a good question. I mean, for mine, it, it for mine it starts with a physical stature because mm-hmm. I'm a little bit taller. So I would immediately look to DJ a, a Brooks, a Dustin Johnson, an Uniel's, like someone who's at that, even an Ian Baker Finch. You know, to mention mm-hmm. a legend at that level because they've actually had to deal with with height and being buffeted with the wind and um except they're all stronger and talented which is a little bit getting in the way i mean there'd be no point me mirroring Corey paven or ian woosnam you know given the fact that they're as tall as my hip that there's just nothing dynamically that's going to marry up it's funny it's yeah because i'd love to i'd love to try and copy a um a louis Ustazen swing but i'm nowhere near as supple as he is <laughs> i'm more likely to be i don't know a shane lowry style um style well, this is, uh, well this is what i was going to ask because if you if you physically aren't capable of of the same type of mobility is it still worth pursuing that kind of technique if that is a weak spot mm. in in your physical makeup are you, is it worth trying to overextend or do you think you're just better off playing conservative with technique and then follow up to that question is probably do people follow or try and imitate someone who they can relate to for that reason? Oh, a supplementary question. You know, I reckon the best person to actually answer these would be someone who actually knows something, like Kipper. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, you know, we still haven't come up with a price tag that enables him to get on the podcast. But I would think there's an element that would mean that you've got to, as long as you're committing to something, you're going to learn something. So there's, mm. so if you look at how DJ is and how he rips his hands through the ball, and even and even Brooks Kepka, so some start to look towards the target as they're at impact. Someone like Brooks Kepka almost continues to look at the ball well after the ball's flown, and you can pick something up. So it's actually a feel, not the real, and that's that. This comparison of feel versus real is that you're trying to do something which is working on a feel that might not look like that, and it's actually irrelevant because you're not, you know, trying to mimic them or, or, or ape them or otherwise. You're actually just trying to pick up little habits from them that might just help you. And I love the yeah. way DJ rips that he rips his hands through the ball, which is like, oh, I'd love to be able to do that at 11 miles an hour because that would be a 50% increase in my club speed. But anyway, yeah, so I wanted to get in there early. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that I think it's good. It's a good practice for beginners such as myself because I think once you get to a certain level, you probably know what every aspect of your technique is doing and you're able to make tweaks and adjustments. And I think as a, as a beginner, if you just emulate, then you're going to be doing a bunch of things right even if you don't really realise the value of them or what they bring to your swing. You're just doing them from from imitation. Yeah. And I think then you start to learn as as you as you move away from things or you, you come back to things, the impact that it has on, on the outcome of your shot. Who'd you imitate today, Dev? And was it worth the fine that's in the mail? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still I'm I'm still working on um, head down. Jeff. That's where <laughs> yeah, I'm at. Right. <laughs> One step at a time. Keep yeah. your head down. That's uh, yeah. I'm, I'm still a little ways off uh, of of, of uh, selecting elements of my own technique from the buffet of golfers. Mate. <laughs> still keeping it under the wind, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Getting off the ground is is, <laughs> is is enough of a win. So, Philly, have you got any game changes for us this week? Well. Duh- 
Sure. Thanks for the lead in, Shooter. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of finger pointing going on here at the moment. Read, read the message, pal. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. I just, I just froze because I wasn't live. Well, I am now. I'm not. One thing that came out of the X-Golf Indoor Challenge is an idea that I think I could really get to love a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'll sponsor this bill. Discussion point. And that is the idea of two-metre gimme circle, whereby these guys played professionally and as soon as the ball was in two met- within two metres of the hole, assuming it hadn't got in, you just add one shot, pick it up, move to the next. Yep. It's conceded, yeah. So my question is this, what impact would that have on your handicap? And then as we discussed on the, the night but really didn't get a chance to go into any detail because only one of the mics was working, whose game do you think it would benefit the most on, on tour over the years? Uh, and who do you think it will hinder the most? This idea of too many gimme circles. For one, would I love it? I think I'd. Lo- it would certainly help my game. And I've I've been I've been all in favour of this up until probably about four seconds ago when I thought <laughs> I actually quite like the sound of the ball dropping into the cup or hitting the foam. Well, yeah. Well, good point. Actually, while while we're foamed <laughs> up, yeah, let's bring it in. <laughs> it, it's certainly an anti-COVID move, so that's good. What about with the two-metre zone, all right? Now, here's, here's one for you. Inside that two-metre area is like the free-throwing basketball where if you're inside that zone, everyone has the right to try and put you off and do everything they can once you're in that zone. It's golf etiquette to that point. Once you're there, it's like a free-throw. You pull the, you pull the balloons out, the streamers. As, as we've discovered with Barons, you, you can you pull the mirror out and shine a bit of sunlight into the eyes. You do what you got to do. So, Dev, what I'm going to give you credit for here is one thing and one thing only. At least that hasn't been suggested before or is not currently in the rules of golf. So I thought you were going to go down Match Play Street again, I'll be honest, and then I thought you might go down there. What about within two metres? Every time the ball hits the club, you count it as an extra shot. It would be amazing. <laughs> I don't mind it. I actually don't. I think there's something in that that just says, particularly – be boys' weekends or otherwise, it removes yeah, a relax. lot of ambiguity around yeah. gimmies and quick rakes and gimmies. You get, and- Phil, the reality is the person, the people that are going to cop it the most are those that the whole group knows are very more, much more inclined to, shall we say, bend the rules on those weekends in order to win. So they're going to, you're going to know that the whole group knows. So it's kind of like a, a team bonding exercise. Yeah, I, I, look, I think you're probably right. But the other a- aspect of it was the impact of a professional career because we asked um, mm-hmm. Kipper about the two-metre gimme circle and unequiv- unequivocally he declared that Robert Allenby would have been one of the greatest the world has ever seen mm. if two-metre yeah. gimmies existed. Yet for a Ben Crenshaw or a Brad Faxon or a Tiger Woods- It wouldn't Woods, have made any difference, yeah. It, it actually would have allowed others to- In fact, arguably- to catch well, up to so Tim, I'm, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure that- Others would catch up to those guys, or especially a tiger. I don't think it would have changed at the top. I still think Tiger and Jack would still be there because they'd be they'd yeah. be within two meters more than anyone else anyway, from whatever range they're from. So I'm not sure it would actually change it all that much. But it's a pretty key element of golf <laughs> that we're saying. Oh, let's just get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I the suppose what we're doing is, it. yeah, <clears throat> I think in this is age of COVID. And if we're trying to avoid people grabbing the flag stick and we've got to do all these other things, then then it probably makes a lot of sense. You know, if, if this mm-hmm. is going to keep going because a security guard chose to play a couple of extra holes, Mitch Comstein style, oh, hang on, I've already done that. But if this is going to keep going, then it probably makes a lot of sense. And therefore, everyone's handicapped the same. They're all playing off the same tee. They've all got the two-metre gimme rule. There's no dispute because it's drawn on the green. 
you know. We'll give it a go. Phil, Phil, have you noticed just by the by that whenever, since season one of Golf Barons has been on Foxtel and on KO, you always refer to a flag stick as flag shtick? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Just a little, just a little subtle, a little subtle reminder. Get over I and watch it, guys. I think that's a myth. <laughs> <Should> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Gear effect, boys. Let's let's keep this thing moving. Phil, you've got something this week. It was mine. Was really around the this idea of of what I'll call the claim game. We've touched on the claim game before, but it's at what point in time do you call something? For example, Australian made, or from a golf club point of view, as an example, forged. And a couple of discussions we've been having recently is what what is is forged other than the signature. Well, well, yeah, well, I was going to say because this has confused me a little bit. Because you'll correct me because you are the the other product guy. But for me, my understanding was forged meant a whole head was was forged from one billet. Is that not correct? Well, well, that I, I think that in lies the question is that it's been taken a little bit loosely in that now I, I think that because I'm the same as you. Yeah, forged was always oh, it's forged, and you've either got you might have one piece forged or you might. But have I thought, two. yeah. Two pieces, oh, okay. ideally, yeah, yeah. But but still, all the bits are forged, and we'll call it forged, as opposed to discovering that it's all made of rubber. But then I forged the badge. Hey, yeah. it's forged. You yeah, moved it. Exactly. It's like saying you've got a, a one piece suit, but there's four elements to it. It just does, doesn't make sense to me. Or am I not, just too old not, school? Not not in any way, shape, or form. So that was what that was. I suppose it's my thought bubble of. So there's forged. And then there's forged, and I guess it's probably something just to be aware of. Technically, out in the marketplace, is that it, if anyone can throw out forged because one piece mm-hmm. of the golf club is forged, often you may well find that the body of the golf club is forged, but the face, in fact, is not. Which actually goes against what forged was already about. Because if I say forged, demo from a golf club point of view, and Dev, yeah, chime in as well. Like, what do you immediately think if I say, "Oh, by the oh, way, this for me, forged. my MP twenties straight away, my Mizuno's. Mizuno's to me are forged." That's what I always think of forged. blades. Yeah, beautiful forge. Am, am, am I correct, Phil? Well, you are on, on this instance. You are correct on this. The MP20s are. So I, I think what I think forged. I think buying ping irons from the Queen Vic market and they're pronounced and it's spelled <laughs> ping, ping instead. <laughs> Forgeries versus forged. <laughs> um, and in some ways, but- Kipper is still here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But I think that is that is in many respects the, the point is that so forged I suppose forged by any other name is not forged and it was something that just occurred to me of late with a number of golf clubs that are in the market at the moment a number mm-hmm. of golf clubs that are, are probably due to be released or otherwise that what is forged when is forged not forged and I guess this yeah. is just the question out there for punters who are looking at golf clubs is to say if, if it's forged then tell me how much of the club is forged. Mm-hmm. And now forty three percent forged, but see, Phil, for me, I guess this is, okay. This is a question for you. What is the benefit of a forged club? Because I've always, I've never really delved into it, and I've always, you know, you hear it spoken about, and it's always sort of, oh, forged is better than not than non forged. You mean a Vic Market forged, or you mean a legit- no? I, I don't mean a Dimmies and forged. I mean an actual forged. <laughs> forged was always about the the feel because the idea be- behind a, a forged versus cast is that a forged metal has got better feel, better sound management, and it was always around the feel though because it's, it's okay. largely got to be carbon ah, steel. Hence, nothing feels like a Mizuno tag. Gotcha. Yes. Whereas whereas four three one and all these other stainless steels that are melted and cast try and uh, replicate that forged feel with with sound badges and a few other things, and some of them do it unbelievably 
well, but there is still forged at one end, and then there is there is cast. And but ultimately, they're going for the trying to get to the most acoustics. But forged for me, it was always about feel, and it was always so about you, sound. Yeah, yeah. So you can kind of have a half forged in a way that you, as you were speaking about, can you have a half cast? <laughs> oh, champagne comedy. <laughs> and on that note, Phil, I'm going to move us along to my gear effect for this week. Not quite as deep as yours. It's, it's almost this could have been thrown under the hate, but I've, I've reworded it so that I can sneak it into gear effect. I'm talking about some on-course management uh, around rakes in bunkers. Now, we know that rakes have been taken out now for to be COVID safe and all the rest of it. And I actually think it's a great – I love it as a concept, meaning that we can then flatten out with our feet and have preferred lies, and that's perfect. Um, I actually think it's the way we should be going forward. But having said that, have you seen – the state of bunkers that are being left at the moment out on course. What were the bunkers like where you played today, Dev, that'll be remain unnamed? They were damp. <laughs> no, don't give me damp, but were people taking care of them as they were? I mean, did you see that people uh, were trying to make an effort to? Well, well, the person that I played with was in a bunker and just picked the ball up and exited the bunker and... Uh, <laughs> And left massive big footprints in it. And left footprints, footprints. And left footprints all over it. But, uh, like, uh, they weren't noticeably in disrepair. They weren't but- chopped up or anything. Okay. Well, you're not welcome to yeah. contribute to the rest of this topic because <laughs> I have not. <laughs> have you noticed this, Phil? I have noticed this a lot, and, and particularly, at, uh, again, at a golf course that I'm lucky enough to play it that I won't mention because I never do, but if you haven't caught it Is it a local now- course or is it a local course or is it a national course, Phil? It, it, it's a bit more. It's it's a local national. Okay, um, gotcha. But I wonder whether or not, as soon as it was declared there's no rakes, the responsibility just said, you know, bugger it. I don't care how I leave it. The number of bunkers where people have walked oh. up the faces and there are just these massive footprints. One which is just, you know, the worst thing you can do coming out of a bunker anyway. But where's the care for the general tidiness of the course? Just swipe I it agree. over your foot and leave to the lowest point. So bunkers are leave to the lowest point of the bunker. See, this feels. Point- this feels like to me the whole dog park and people leaving dog Davis Love the thirds around. Like I think it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a joke. If they're not going to pick it up, you're going to ruin it for everyone, and you're not going to have them anymore. It's such a simple thing to do. Parks or but, dogs? But my but my my question to you, Phil, is: Are we just noticing people who ordinarily wouldn't rake the bunker doing the same thing now without rakes? Well, I mean that there's no rakes, that it's even more obvious. Like, is it just – are we seeing the same problem? It's just heightened heightened more because no one else is fixing it for them like they, you know, would have. We've given them an excuse for behaviours that already existed. I reckon we're just seeing a bunch of shit guys and shit girls who are just shit people deep down and have been looking for an excuse to express how crap human beings they are. Demonetised again. Thanks, Phil, just to make <laughs> yeah. sure if we didn't get it before. Goodbye, you. <laughs> But I just, I mean, it is just a lack of respect and a lack of care. It, and explicit content. Yes. You can tell who has to put like all this stuff together. <laughs> but it, it's just crap and it's just this genuine lack of care. It's frustrating. And so, Damo, so. to your point, is it, about, um, is it about rakes? It might not necessarily reflect with their ability to, to rake a bunker because they're likely to be being observed from their playing partners. What it will, it will come out somehow in, am I putting sand into a divot? Am I repairing a pitch mark? Like it's got the same habits and behaviours that are causing mm. massive footmarks in the face of bunkers and making the awesome ground staff at golf courses all over the country and, and all over the world who do the very best they can. It's just making their life bloody difficult and mm. stop being so selfish, yeah. security yeah. guards. <laughs> 
Mitch Cumstein's. Well, that that could almost have been a top topic, Phil. Oh, top topic, top topic. Well, I suppose it is in many respects because my top 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 topic is really around uh, etiquette. Uh, and so a question was posed by the night, and it's a few weeks ago now. But the night asked mm-hmm. about the etiquette of when to hit up and when not to hit up on the group in front. Mm-hmm. Like, do you actually wait until they're absolutely out of? range or do you give it a little bit of a crack just in case you give it a bit of a tickle? And then what happens if you happen to nail one and it gets onto the green, which leads on to another point from that my old man who's becoming the star of this show did mention that at one stage he was playing at a course called Yarra Bend, believe it or not, and a bloke was lining oh, I've up. I've never played there myself. Tell <laughs> a me bloke was lining up a putt and um, the so he was like over his putt and it was miles away. Like he couldn't possibly have got home. Miles he, away? Was he, in the, was he in the 18th or? And he, or it was miles away from the clubhouse, but <laughs> he, he hit it and it whacked him in the ass. Um, and he was, as the guy was bending over to line up his putt, the ball whacked him in the ass. And my old man, again, was shattered because from, I mean, he, he hits it further than I do. So from 135 out, he's <laughs> managed to get home with three wood. Um, and couldn't believe that he couldn't believe it he got there. So, the etiquette of the game. So, when do you hit up and when not to? What's your what's your general rule of thumb? Mine. I've had too many close calls, Phil. I just make sure they're completely out of range. So, is that off the <laughs> golf course, off the corresponding holes either side too, Damo? Where, like, how do you manage that? Well, do, do I, can I just give you a, a, the reason why I refuse to hit up if someone's in range? I'll give you a quick one. I was playing. Um, I was playing uh, at Woodlands a little while ago, and basically, my driving's not the greatest, as you know. So I've, I've teed off, uh, hit it, uh, missed the fairway I was aiming for, and uh, hit the corresponding fairway, but did find the middle of the fairway. So it was Seve style, Phil. Anyway, got over to it, uh, got the laser out, and th- there was like trees in between the two holes, and I looked uh, looked towards the green, lasered it up. And it came back and it was about 195 or around about that 190 or something. And I thought, all right, cool. Time to take my medicine. Um, just Let's just hit a nine iron over the trees into the fairway and then have like a 40 or 50 metre pitch in um, and try and get up and down to save a part. Anyway, so I get up, get over it. I flushed it, but I pulled it. You know when you, you sort of come over the top a little bit or I've, I've hit it, it's gone straight up high over the trees, but I've pulled it. So it's basically I've pulled it to in line with the pin. And I'm thinking, ah, geez, oh, well, it's going to get caught up in the trees here and it's going to be a really hard shot out here. I've, I've stuffed this. Or if I get really lucky because I felt like I've hit it pretty well, it'll end up in the bunker, greenside bunker, if I'm really lucky. Anyway, the first bounce lands pin high. Unfortunately, there was a player holding said pin at the time. For <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, second bounce, it spins back to tap-in range, almost holes out to tap-in range. Let's be honest, an incredible birdie. And I've just, I felt horrific because I didn't call four because I just didn't think I was anywhere near that distance. It turns out I've probably lasered it incorrectly or I've hit the wrong thing. Probably should have had a GPS, uh, a GPS there. Um, but anyway, so we get up there. Uh, the, the guys have just moved to the next hole. I've tapped in and just like bolted over to say sorry. Um, I've never felt so horrible. I could dead set nearly hit the guy and it, it would have hurt. Uh, got over to them. They came over. They were in carts and they've come past. And one of the guys, I'm like, I'm so sorry. He he puts his hand out and goes, yeah, it's all right, mate. No worries. I tried to explain it. The other guy wanted to wrap his putter around my head. And he wasn't even the guy I nearly hit. Um, and I, I felt so bad. And I truly didn't hit up. And I wasn't trying to rush up on them or anything. I genuinely tried to play this. See, this is why I don't play safe golf, Phil, because it doesn't turn out well for me. Anyway, it was a magnificent birdie. So I'm glad I got that on the podcast. <laughs> ever, <laughs> have you ever hit anyone or been hit? 
Well, we almost got hit today a couple of times, uh, which was absolutely no need because it was pretty quiet on course. No need to rush was was my general feedback. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but there's a there's a uh, I think you you just got to go assume you're going to flush it and hit the best shot that you possibly can and and judge it based on that. I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the comedian Mitch Hedberg huh. who talked who talked Stephen, about Stephen uh, loved, playing golf. Loved him, and he said he didn't get a birdie, but he did hit a guy. <laughs> and he said you're supposed to yell four, but I was too busy mumbling. There's no way that's going to hit him. <laughs> and uh, I, I think you got to go into that with 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 that in mind that. Don't assume that you're not going to flush it and hit the person because that'll be the time where you absolutely do. And you, you'll you sit there and go, please don't hit him, please don't hit him, and it will hit him. It's a horrible feeling. Right. But at the same time, how many times have you sat there and waited for a, a group to clear and then you've lost all your momentum and you end up just topping it and you go, well, I should have I've just cold topped it. I may as well have just hit and I could have hit my next three shots to get up to the green. Well, I and think sometimes you yeah. sometimes you hit early to to give them the hurry along. Hey? What, that always what goes if, well oh, as well. What if they're, <laughs> Phil, what if they're really close? And you know that you're going to clear them comfortably. Can you hit over them? Well, <laughs> I've got a couple of examples of when is appropriate, when's not appropriate, and uh, it is a bit of a self Dorothy Dix. So I'm going to mention a couple of examples. One, I was playing golf with a, a very very good golf pro, and this is many years ago at Metropolitan, um, where the X Golf Challenge was actually based. And we're on the 17th hole at Metro and I was looking for my, for my ball. Anyone who knows Metro, there's some pine trees on the right side of or short of 17 and finally found my ball. But this golf pro who, again, as I always do, will remain nameless, Garth Cusick and his guest were up on the green. <laughs> G'day, and Garth. so I, I played up and I hit the ball and waited, Dave, to your point, with almost a Mitch Hedberg of, yeah, no, it's probably not going to get there, and just gave it the... <laughs> Um, <laughs> as it hit this guy and hit him on the hand and from Ooh. far enough out, but it actually hit him on the hand. Now, was he was a surgeon by any chance? Oh, no, seriously. Have you, I told you this story. <laughs> no, so no, you haven't. We, um, so we finished the, we finished the 17th. Yeah, no, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. You didn't mean, you didn't mean it. And then played 18. The next day, Garth rings yeah. me at work and says, um, we've got a bit of a problem. What, what are you talking about? He said, well, you, you broke his hand. And I can't remember the gentleman's name. He said, you broke his hand, right? Jesus. He's an architect. He can't work. Uh, and he's getting legal <laughs> advice as we speak. Sure he wasn't a town planner? <laughs> and I was Trust just, I, I seriously, I mean, after I stopped vomiting and got, because I'm quite composed under pressure, um, <laughs> I, I was, and, and then he waited a good 30 seconds until he knew I was almost dead. And then said, "No, I'm just no, okay. okay. It's just a bit of a <laughs> um, But I swear to, I swear to, Jar, that uh, <laughs> that I I almost died. So that was that was step one. First time, actually, second time I hit someone because the first time I hit someone was playing golf at Ivanhoe Golf Course, and we were on the 14th hole, and I thought the group in front were a fair way down, and I actually knew two of the three people playing because they were brothers, and I went to school with Sonny. And his little brother Deepak and their big, big dad, and flush three wood that landed on Deepak's head <laughs> on the floor. Right. So I did call four. Uh, and he did, at least, he did at least it wouldn't thing. have. At least it wouldn't have come in with any heat, Phil. <laughs> he, he. I did call. No, that was when I could actually play. He. I did call four. He didn't move. Um, Deepak forgave me straight away. Sonny said everything will be okay. No worries. Yeah. Anyway, not so much. And then, so the rest of it, that 
I got told that it was probably inappropriate to be hitting off when I did uh, in polite terms, probably the same way you spoke to the gentleman today, Dev. And then the final one, I was playing golf in around this Walker Cup that we go away playing golf and uh, we're at Rich River, um, which Ooh. we won't be going back to for the first time in 18 years because apparently we know how to take the reservation. We just we don't, don't know, know how, how to keep the reservation. Hold, hold the, the reservation. reservation. <laughs> um, and that's the, that's the key part. <laughs> the holding. Can anybody, the can just take, anybody can just take it. <laughs> um, if anyone could see what was happening now, they've got three idiots all waving their hands around taking reservations. Um, but it was with a guy called Dave Walker who is involved in two hitting incidents. One, I was in a cart with Dave and I said, in the cart, I said, I'm right here, aren't I? And he said, yeah, no worries, because I was actually equal to and slightly behind him. Even though that happened, I had a sense that I was in trouble. So I lay down on the cart seat whilst he was in front of me. He hit, and all I heard was whack, bing, dong. A ball has smashed me behind the ear on the base of my skull, going full bore, thanks to Dave, and uh, ears ringing, had genuine concussion, and finished birdie, birdie, par. <laughs> There's a lesson for you. Um, but it's just this idea. So so from, a, from an etiquette point of view, when do I hit up, when do I not, and how do you handle it if you've hit someone? Because no one ever wants to do it, and there's plenty of stories at Yarraband that have resu- resulted in, oh, mate, I'll just, how about I break the shaft over my leg mm. and we'll settle this in a different way. And there has been many instances, because friends of mine used to run Yarraband, of people running into the pro shop, potentially leaking some oil, let's just say. So... <laughs> Make yeah. sure if you're going to hit up that they're out of range, make sure you call four, make sure you're not playing in front of Damo. <laughs> Pretty much all of the above. But, Phil, I mean, hitting up on people, is, is it's, a, it's a way to speed the game up, to hurry people up a little bit. And that, that's getting into mind this week, which is I just want to touch base about slow play. I know we talk about it a lot, but just a couple of little things that have triggered it for me again of late. Um, do, does one, number one, does point and shoot help your game or, do, or does it hurt it? Does it slow it down or is it actually quicker? Dev, what do you reckon? You played today. I think it was sl- slowing down my game today helped me, but the fellow that I played with just threw caution to the wing at around hole six and finished the game incredibly well. So caution to the wind being just literally just Just point and step shoot. up and hit. Just step up and hit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that's so, one of the key, one know. of the key points. Of, <laughs> one, yeah, but one of the key points of that is that do you just trust what's already there? Because you can't change it. Like you can't. I think uh, for, for me, I think I think if you have a routine, a pre-shot routine that is making you think about too many elements of the action, it's going to fall apart. But if your routine is just is just purely procedural to get you in the right headspace and your mind's clear and it's short, like, you know, we, we don't want the Novak Djokovic 37 bounces of the ball before you hit. We don't want 57 practice yeah. swings. We want to just go through a quick routine, get into place, feel like we're focused and then swing. That was going to be my corollary. Um, Dav, are coaches teaching pre-shot routines, are they to blame for, for slow golf? I've got my own thoughts on that. But, um Phil, what do you think? Are coaches to blame? I think Kipper's to blame. (laughs) I mean, he's not here. I can blame him for a lot of stuff. And Katie, for me, pre-shot routines themselves and teaching them is actually, I think it's it's a positive thing. I actually think we need to teach more people pre-shot routines. We just need to teach them to have quicker or or more precise pre-shot routines. That's the thing for me because I've got a pre-shot routine. I'm a quick player. Um, But- you know, I play a lot more shots than most people. So who knows if it actually ends up being any quicker. But I'm pretty quick once I've decided what, I've, what I need to do, but I still have a pre-shot routine that I do on every single shot. 
doesn't make you slow in itself, in and of itself. It's an interesting one. I think that, you know, one of the other things is is choosing clubs and where, where the game often gets slowed down is, oh, is it six or seven or – and, and yeah. again, Greg Norman um, used to say, I mean, he's, in his book Shark Attack, he said, back your gut feel. The first club you gra- grab is the club you should hit because mm. something in your brain – and we speak a lot about Malcolm Gladwell and about this idea mm. of, of thin slicing, the, the, you know, of, of assessing your brain is always a filing cabinet and it's always mm-hmm. going to hang on this far, this far, this far, this far, and it pulls out the right file and it says seven iron. Yep. Just hit seven iron. Just trust it, yeah. But I think I think Greg Norman's assuming that the gut has played a few games of golf though. <laughs> <laughs> and make, is 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 more likely to make Dav, better decisions. But Dave, you'll find than, than the gut that doesn't play very often. But you might also find you might also find Dave that, and actually, proof of that is probably um, we did a bit of filming out at Mandalay, and we saw just how slowly so many groups came through. Um, a lot of them not necessarily good golfers. Slowing it down doesn't doesn't make you less of a bad golfer if that makes sense. No, it almost um, has the opposite effect. Yeah, so so I think I think the less people can get in their heads and if you want to have the slow stuff or maybe at a range um you, when you want to think of a thousand things and then the you know the result doesn't matter nearly as much. But when you're on a course, back what you've done before you got mm. there. It won't be perfect, of course not. It's not perfect for the best of the best, but it's still it's a far far better approach and it's far more socially uh, acceptable approach for those of us who are out there. But with with the whole slow play thing and using Mandalay as an example when we were filming out there, I don't know, it got me thinking, is is it kind of a cultural thing at certain clubs? Not saying Mandalay itself, but is it, is it a cultural thing at a golf club? Um, you know, like we talk about culture in football clubs, are some golf clubs worse at others or, or have more of a tolerance for slow play than others? Number one and two, how do we reinvent that culture? Um, is that just a combination of member attrition and time? Fastest round gets a free lunch. <laughs> <laughs> See, but I think there's there should be some Dev. If you get round in three and a half hours or under, there's four beers waiting for you. Yeah, yeah. No, just for Why you. Not? I mean, that like as an incentive to speed up your your teammates. Um, I suppose the same question about culture could be asked around the security companies guarding. I really should let go of that. But their cultures um, haven't come back yet, Phil. They're still waiting. But but one of the things. So so this is a frustration. Every sporting interview that I've ever heard, or that I've heard certainly in the last five years, oh, you know, we're just controlling what we can control. Um, control the controllables. Control the controllables. It so- is what it is. <laughs> Hang on a minute. You've got to take it one swing at a time, Phil. Right. So one of the things is the obsession with pre-shot routines, potentially, is that, oh, well, as long as I've got that under control, then, you know, I can't do much about the rest. But that is one thing they can control is left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, mm-hmm. you know, followed by the left and the right in quick succession. It's um, called running, you dickhead. <laughs> that's that's right. But the interesting thing, just go on to, on to the press conferences, is why has no reporter ever said, can you give me an example of a one controllable that you're referring to as opposed to the throwaway lines? Mm. Because in golf, the pre-shot routine would be, so what are my controllables? Well, my stance, choose club, get stance right. This is all pre-action, pre-dynamic action. Choose yeah. stance, get mm. club right, point in the right direction, mm. commit, close at eyes. The ri- at the yeah, risk uh- of giving Kipper, at the risk of giving Kipper a, um, a plug, his well, his tip on his pre-shot routine is actually one of the, 
if everyone did that, we would quicken this game up so so rapidly. His whole concept of doing three things at once in a quad, but the way in which you do it in a really specific way, or as he likes to say, using a lot of specificity, Phil. No, um, he likes to say specificity. Yes, yes. He likes to add a syllable where he can. Well, it's a city of specificity. <laughs> it's a whole city. Because I was going to say to your point, Phil, that in a lot of other sports where there are pre-shot routines, they're usually sports where the conditions are the similar or the same every time. The serve in a game of tennis, the, the court doesn't change, the, the environment doesn't change, whereas, you know, should you have a different routine depending on the club you're playing, depending on the lie of the ball, depending on, you know, where the ball is, you know, in terms of on the fairway, in the rough, because there are a lot of variables. But I think we need to take as many variables out of this game, Dav, uh, to, to simplify it as best we can because it is already yeah. overly complicated. But that's what I, I, I mean. So maybe maybe a pre-shot routine doesn't work in golf for that reason. There are so many other variables that you should be thinking about before you, you step up and hit the ball. I like to just focus on controlling the controllables and uh, that's what we'll intend to do uh, next week and, um, and okay. you know, the result right, will look Phil. after itself. I mean, we're all about process here. You know, we know we've done the preparation as long as we control what we can control, uh, as axiomatic as that sounds, um, you know, the, the result will just will happen. You know, we're a process-driven organisation and we'll continue to be process-driven uh, as much as we can and control those things we can control. Next question. Will you be taking that week by week, Phil? We're going to take it uh, one game at a time. And in fact, we're going to go a little bit micro this week. We're going to take it one millisecond at a time. And so if we can win more milliseconds in the game than we lose, we've got some analysts. We've got a team of analysts onto it. And they'll, you know, as long as they control the analytics and as long as they control the data they can, you know, we'll take it one step at a time and and be very process driven. I think everything should uh, come together nicely. Oh, well, I guess it is what it is. Dav. Over to you, big guy. Have you got a yes, topic well, for my, us? Well, yes, my top topic. Sorry, um, your what? My my top topic. Top topic. <laughs> it relates to who you choose to play the game with, and what impact they have on your ability to get better over time. So, taking today as an example, I played with you know, a fella that's pretty cruisy, pretty laid back, not competitive. I mean, you know, we're both there to enjoy the game. To get a little bit better, whereas you bring a third person that we know into the group and all of a sudden it's game on, we, we're counting every shot, there's bit of there's, competition. There's, there's yeah. competition, there's trash talk. Does that make <laughs> me a better player? Obviously in that round, but not only that, will that make me a better player in the long run playing with someone that pushes you versus someone that lets you just learn the game naturally and relax and enjoy the process? I would say straight off the bat, Dav, that that depends on your purpose for playing golf. To get better. Well, if you if you want to get – if it's purely to become a better golfer and lower your score, then competition, we know competition helps you in everything, whether it's in sport, whether it's in business, whether it's – it doesn't matter what it's in, competition is the thing that will make you better. It will make you strive and make you achieve more. Uber golf ratings is the other thing that, that helps. And uh, I'm glad you've given me this opportunity to talk about the controllable that is Uber golf ratings because oh, if we were to – um, but in reality, but we spoke about this in the last podcast. We were talking about the fact that Bubba Watson declared, Bubba Watson declared that the better player I play with, uh, who's mm. more like me, the better I'm going to play. And mm. a player can actually cost him two shots or help him two shots. Now, Dave, to your point about improvement, there's always that assumption is that if I play with a better player, I'm likely to aspire and therefore get better quickly. But some better players just give you the 
Oh, no, I've already, we're already an explicit podcast, aren't we? Mm. Um, some better players just give you the shits, and the last thing you mm. want to do, because they've just, there's still got to be Uber 4s or Uber 4.5s. Mm. There's mm. plenty of good players that are Uber 1.6s. Good blokes trump good players. Is that what you're saying, Phil? <laughs> um, I tell you, your, your ultimate, I'd rather have, let's say I was off 20. Or twenty five, or, or yeah, let's let's say you're off. 20, yeah, oh, sure. you're big coming from you. <laughs> so let's say Damo could break a hundred. Um, his his opportunity then <laughs> is to say, knob. is he better off playing with someone who's an eighty eight or an eighty nine, but a cracking bloke who will actually help him on the journey, than someone who's going to shoot seventy two and be a complete cock. Yeah, and, and just, I would and just take, cause, I'd take yeah. eighty nine. I'd take Uber four point six because you're going to yep. pick up on something, and it might be temperament controllables. Well, and, and I think the other thing is. You know, with, with other sports, if you want to get good at football, you'll join a football team, you'll train with that football team a couple of times a week, there'll be match simulation, there'll be low-pressure environments for you to learn you know, aspects of the game, skills, yeah. and then you put that into practice on Keys the weekend. The Whereas for, for those of us not lucky enough to have a 8-metre quickster range net, <laughs> yeah. to do that practice – then you're practicing on the golf course when you're playing. So you, you don't. I think you don't want every match to be height, you know, heightened tension and bitterness and <laughs> you know all that warfare. You want a handful of those rounds to be laid back, relaxed, almost you know simulation. You know, you throw an extra ball in, hit a couple of extra tee shots, and and just learn the game. Which and if you're never getting that experience, you're never getting that opportunity to do that, then I, I almost think that the, the, the competition can hold you but back. There's, but there's also there's no fitness like match fitness, Dav. So if you're looking to get better, I'd still argue that you'd want to, you'd want to see how you cope under the pressure of that competition and see yeah. what affects you around that competition. That doesn't mean that you don't get out and, and, and have practice. I mean, even pros have practice rounds. Of course they do. So, um, and in those rounds, they're nowhere near as competitive. But um, the way, the quickest way, I'd say, to get yourself um, improving quickly, or at least seeing the fault, identifying the faults in your game, so you know what to work on, would be how do you, how well do you go under pressure when the heat's on? And I think we're a little bit different from that point of view, Dave, because being being amateurs who are just trying to enjoy a round of golf, but but improve, versus the the golf pros that we we're dealing with last Wednesday night. So you know, we had Michael Jordan, Zunick, and Brett Shorts Rankin, and. Max Chesty, Chesty McCardle, yes, um, <laughs> who actually lamented, they lamented the fact that there was a real competitive gap where they actually had to feel the pressure of competing and they had to play mm. for money. The fact that Jordan Zunick, you know, realised that virtual trees are as thick as trees when he tried to hit through them in, in the similar environment is that they actually need that to keep sharp once you get to that level. But I think you're right. There's that point where it's the where I also need to be comfortable at. at your level and, and even mm. my level, you've got to be comfortable with who you're playing with. Because I know the minute the minute a score has got to go in a, a comp round, it changes. The pressure yep. goes the pressure goes up. Yeah. No question. Yeah, yeah. So I think that therefore you actually need to find a playing partner who so the perfect mix is a playing partner who is equal at the same at the same level of you who both aspires to get the same improvement that you want. A player that is better than you that happens to be an Uber four point two or above, or a good player given the gaps can be quite wide, who is actually he's got to be about a 4.6 or 4.7, and there's not there's not a heap of them. I mean, Scotty's one. Uh, he knows who he is. But there's not a heap of really good players who are 4.7s that will happily wrap their arms around a, an average player and make them really enjoy the game but learn and try and help them learn. So it's a really good, it's an interesting point, mm. which is the whole reason that Uber Golf Ratings uh, exist, uh, and it's about controlling the controllables. <laughs> 
No, it's a good one, Dap. Enjoyed that. Philip, the ruling party. You've got something you want to tell us uh, how how a uh, a specific rule came about. A little, it's a bit of a, it's kind of it's like a, it's a twist on your old history lesson, isn't it? It's we're trying to make it interesting. <laughs> I, I just tried to actually. I just tried to change the name, so I'm going to keep this quick. And because then we'll finish with a bit of an apology from from last podcast where I may or I may accept. not have got a couple of bits of information wrong, but I'll get there. But it was this idea of continuous putting, which I think might need to require some thought. And brought in as not in 1966, and in fact for the US Open, um, was this idea of continuous putting, whereby once you start putting, you can't mark your ball again until you Oh, you putt out. So you putt out. And you putt out. Yeah. So what happened What happened in the um, 1966 US Open is Billy Casper and Arnold Palmer were playing with each other, and it's the most famous event where this idea of continuous putting um, occurred. Once you start putting, so on the 18th green, Arnold Palmer hit it to 30 feet and putted his ball down but just had to keep going. So in the modern game, you mark you mark the ball and you get to wipe it and then you get to go and do the bloody yep. Vajegas push-up thing and then consult your green reading book. Whereas in 1966, and in fact for two years, you just kept going. Mm-hmm. And the idea was it would speed the game up. And there's nothing about it. That says it wouldn't. That says that it wouldn't. But but you do talk about the result, Phil. Does that not give advantage to the person who's furthest away? I mean, isn't that kind of in? You think of match play. The the Gary player loved being shorter off the tee so that he could hit in first and put the pressure on his opponent. Is it not a similar thing? I think someone a Gary player he might have used one of the excuses that I've used as to why it's always best to be shorter (laughs) off the tee. But you've got to find find the positives in everything. (laughs) He just couldn't hit it further. No, but because I don't think that the putts were in the same environment. You're coming from completely different angles. But what it does do is just get on with it. And it keeps the rhythm Stop marking your ball and remarking it. And the number of cheats out there who mark their ball and then replace the ball three inches in front and then remark it. I mean, not cheat. Sorry. The number of people who- No, that's cheating. (laughs) Well, it's not in the spirit of the law. I mean, it's a bit Patrick Reid type. But but who mark it, remark, and mark it, remark. If you remove that and you just Mm. go, once you've started putting, putt out, you can't touch your ball. Surely it's got to make things quicker, yeah. easier, and not have any impact on scores whatsoever. It's just, you've, you've just single-handedly killed the ball marker movement uh, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, industry, Phil. <laughs> but funnily enough, no one agreed with me because it was made law in 1968 and then um, having been a local law rule, and then it was repealed in 1970, never to come back. But it's one of those rules that I reckon they need to probably have a bit yeah. more at because it would speed the game up dramatically if you could just get on with things similar to the eight-second shot clock. Uh, don't the last point, film. just as apology from last week, and then I will shut up. Regarding my old man, the penalty, in fact, or from last podcast, the penalty, in fact, was for tapping down a spike mark 45 metres from where he was putting because he was just bored and sitting on the green tapping it down. But because he hadn't putted yet, he got called on a technicality. So sorry for the prick on the rocks uh, that was on the ropes <laughs> at that point in time. And he was five up at that stage, I'm assured, and did go on to lose the match. So the guy can still get stuffed. But what was interesting in terms of that measurement of self-governance, he did throw in this little this little chestnut. He was playing a foursomes round at Q Golf Club. No, I won't mm-hmm. mention the golf club because it might dob the bloke in. Yeah, but you just playing have. a foursomes round at a golf club near Q mm-hmm. um, that wasn't Greenacres. And <laughs> with a gentleman, a and he's hit onto the green on this playing in foursomes and uh, marked the ball and then gone to look for where he marked the ball and the ball marker was gone. Either got caught under someone's shoe or got caught in a bit of mud or vanished, not that there's any mud at queue. And this gentleman said, don't worry, you'll be right. Just chuck the ball down. No one needs to know. It's fine. 
Um, near enough, close uh, enough. Near enough, close enough, even if you are a professor of divinity. Anyway, on that note, I am I'm finished. <laughs> and on that note, we'll bring this Tenuous Links Golf Podcast to a close. Special thanks to today's sponsor, Under Armour. Outrageously fine golf apparel, shoes and accessories. And be sure to watch our first season of Golf Barons, available now on demand on KO and Foxtel with new episodes released weekly. You can also head over to baronslife.com and help us out directly by buying the full season for yourself and sign up to get reminders about this podcast and Barons Life Golf and Lifestyle magazine with a new issue to be released shortly. Keep an eye out for that. Until next time, Barons, from the three of us, add some swagger to your swing.